Do you ever feel like you have to just push all the time to make things happen? I do. I'm a make it happen kind of guy. And I live in a world where deliverables are always being expected of me. And so consequently, I feel especially, and it seems like as the, as the culture goes more and more into postmodernism, it feels like I have to push more and more to make stuff happen. I feel like I'm pushing uh, at work. I feel like I'm pushing to get things done. And, and is it just me? But like when you do business these days, it's almost like you have to push to make just what would be baseline expectations happen. I don't know about you, but I get so tired of having to push. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you have to push your husband to get him to do anything, <laughs> right? You have to push your wife to get her to see your point of view. And Lord knows if you have teenagers, you have to like push with both hands all the time because they just, I mean, they have to be pushed out of bed, pushed into bed, pushed to do their homework, pushed to go to school, pushed to clean up, pushed to do anything. You just gotta like, and you have to ask them all the time, did you remember to do this? Did you remember to do that? No, no, no. So you just, anybody like me just tired of pushing? I mean, I think that's what's fatiguing our culture today. Years ago, I read the story about a man who was the CEO of a corporation that was situated in a fairly small city. And just about everybody in that city worked for his company. So not only was he responsible to be a successful CEO, but anything that sort of came along in that community that was you know, important, like a blood drive or, or a ballet or just anything coming into the community, he was expected to get behind and make happen. Well, this was a long time ago, back when people paid a lot of attention to trains. And at 2.45, every day, a train ran through that town. And everybody noticed that worked at the company that this CEO would run out of his office and run down to the train station and just stand there and watch the train go by every day. And then he'd go back to work. 2.45, he's going to go out, watch the train go by. They thought, this man must love trains. Watched it go by every day. Finally, somebody got up the courage to ask him, why, why do you do that? I mean, if you've seen the train go by one time, you've seen it go by all the time. So why do you go out every day to watch the train go by? He said, I just want to see one thing come into this town I don't have to push. <laughs> I feel that way sometimes. I'm tired of pushing. But maybe we're doing the wrong kind of pushing. Maybe the pushing that we're doing doesn't bring about the results that we really want to see and need to see happen in our lives. I want to introduce you for the next five weeks to a different kind of pushing. Our series is called PUSH, P-U-S-H. It's an acronym. I'm not, the, I'm not the responsible person for this acronym. It's been around for a long time. But the acronym PUSH, P-U-S-H, stands for pray until something happens. For the next two weeks, today and next weekend, I'm going to be bringing you a talk on the subject of the letter P, pray. What do we learn? What do we know about prayer? And then in week three, the letter U, until. I don't know if you've realized this, but when you pray sometimes, you have to wait for a while. What's going on when you have to wait? I think my favorite week of the series is the letter S. That's something, because oftentimes we pray for one thing and God gives us a different thing. You know, something will happen when you pray. It might not be exactly what you're asking for, but we'll learn in the process that God's ways are always best. And then I, I get to close out the series with the letter H, which is, I really can't wait to bring this talk. It's on the letter happen, and it's on the miracle aspect of prayer. So get ready for the next five weekends to look at a different kind of pushing. Pray until something happens. I got to be honest with you and give you an admission at the beginning of this series. Of all the things in the spiritual realm, prayer is probably my most difficult challenge. Now, my wife, Mary Alice, she's much more devotional in nature, and prayer is very natural for her. Me, 
I'm a type A personality. I'm accustomed to doing stuff. And the idea of sitting still and talking to someone I can't see who doesn't respond back to me verbally, eh, that's a challenge. So prayer has never been easy for me. And I've, I've learned a lot, tried to study a lot about prayer through the years. But there was one, one person's line who helped me more than anyone else, and his name is Bill Hybels. He pastors a large church in Chicago. He's been there for a long time, and I guess it was like 25 years or so ago, I was walking through a bookstore, and I saw his book title, and it captured me. The title was Too Busy Not to Pray. Well, I thought that summed me up because Lord knew I was really busy. So I bought his book, Too Busy Not to Pray. I don't remember a whole lot in the book, but I remember an opening statement that he made. He talked about how that he too, as a make it happen kind of person, struggled with prayer. And yet he knew from the scriptures that prayer was very important. So he said he began to make a large study of prayer. Said he read 25 books, some old, some new. He said that he studied every verse in the Bible he could find on prayer. And this is the statement that stayed with me. And then he said, I did something radical. I prayed. See, that's the thing. For most of us who struggle with prayer like I do, we can hide behind the cover of, I don't know how to. That's not our problem. Our problem is not that we don't know how to pray. Our problem is just that we don't pray. James gives us one of the most chilling verses in the Bible in his book. He says, we don't have because we don't ask. I don't know about you, but that freaks me out because I'm thinking about, what about that warehouse of stuff that God was waiting to give me, but I just never asked. The Bible says we don't have because we don't ask. Well, every, I've been sitting on this series for five years until I felt like and felt that God was showing me that time was right. I was always challenged by this first talk. I mean, when prayer is all over the Bible, how do you, in one sermon, introduce prayer? Well, I thought I could bring you a sermon about the mechanics of prayer, but that doesn't seem to be our problem. We know how to pray. The problem is not the mechanics of prayer, it's the motivation to prayer. So today, and for all of you like me who like the NFL network and love all those top 10 countdowns, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the top 10 reasons to pray. So this is going to move along really quickly, but I just want to share with you what I see in the Bible as the top 10 motivations to pray. Number 10, we know he hears. We know he listens to us. In 1 John chapter 5, the Bible says that, we know he hears. But here is Mary Alice's favorite verse on this, and I love it too. In Psalm 116, verse 2, the Bible says, because he bends down to listen, I will pray as long as I have breath. What's so big about that verse? God's attitude toward our prayer. He bends down to listen. Now, you know, I, I guess being an old man like I am, I sort of have a built-in understanding of this verse that I didn't have, say, 15 years ago. Because, you see, I have grandkids now. And the thing about, I never have understood the thing about grandkids until I had them. And now that I have them, I just, you know, I have a little granddaughter named Audrey, and Audrey's four, and she gets in this little sweet tone of voice like, Papa, can, would you give, and Papa would give her a Ferrari if he could, you know, <laughs> and she gets in that tone of voice. But, you know, especially when my grandkids are toddlers, you know, they're struggling with speech, and I've had too many years of loud rock headphones on, you know, as music as loud as I can get in my ears, not what they used to be. So, you know, when Audrey talks to me, I'm like bending over to hear because see, Papa wants to hear what she has to say. She's very special to me. That's Papa's attitude toward her communication. 
Sometimes as pastor, as large as our church is, someone will come up to tell me something in a crowded concourse and noise going on everywhere. I've, I've thought about that through the years. You know what I do when that happens? I cock my head over with my ear toward them to hear what they have to say. A lot going on, but I'm interested in that problem that they have. And this is what the Bible is saying. God bends down to listen. And the psalmist said, as long as you bend down to listen, I'm going to keep talking as long as I have breath. God hears. You know what? Here's the thing. I think sometimes we measure God hearing us by the answer we perceive. And that's so wrong because God's answers tend to come softly. They don't tend to come like a lightning strike. They tend to come very softly, and they tend to come in their own time and their season. So sometimes when the answer doesn't come when we expect it to and how we expect it to, we just say, God wasn't listening to our prayers. I want to tell you this. What I've discovered is God listens to prayers of people that are not really that into him. In 1978, I graduated from college and went to a church in Houston in the inner city. And I love that church and I love that community. And about two blocks down from our church was a man named David who owned not only a service station but a repair shop. It was what we just had in those days. And I love David. I mean, he's a wonderful guy and I always was trying to get him to come to church. David was a good old boy, kind of guy that would just give you the shirt off his back but he didn't have much interest in God, didn't have much interest in church, but nice guy. Every time I filled up my car with gas, I'd ask him to come. When I had to repair my car, had to take it to him for repairs, I'd say, David, love to have you at our, at our church. Well, again, you have to be really, really old to know about this. Um, in 78 and 79, we had in America what was called the gasoline shortage. And you have to understand, it wasn't like you had to wait a long time to get gas. There were days you just couldn't find gasoline because the gasoline stations were out of gas. I mean, you could run out of gas, and sorry, that's too bad. I mean, you could go by station after station, and the sign would be out, no gas today. Well, David, my friend, who owned the station, had gone to Central Texas to his, he had kind of a resort house there, and he had taken his parents, and on the way back into Houston, he was still about 90 miles outside of Houston, and his gasoline tank was sitting on empty. And so David, my friend, who never went to church, began to pray. And he said, dear God, if you will let me get back to Houston and not run out of gas, I promise you I will go to church tomorrow. You know what? M miraculously, and in his words, he didn't run out of gas, got all the way into Houston. To my surprise, I got up on Sunday morning. There was David sitting in, a, in our church. I was surprised to see him. That's the first time I'd ever seen him in church. The last time I ever saw him in church. <laughs> say, well, well, Mark, what's the, what's the punchline here? David's parents came with him. His mother was 72. His dad was 69. Monday morning, I took the talk to his card, went to the house, sat down with his mom, 72 years old. She prayed and gave her life to Jesus Christ. That night, we went back. I talked to her dad. He gave his life to Jesus Christ. The next weekend, I baptized his mom and dad. See, God heard his prayer. I mean, what other prayers would God have heard for David if he had prayed? Number 10, I love this. He, we know that he hears us. Number nine, we're invited to pray about anything and everything. Sometimes there are people that think, oh, this request is too big for God or this request is too small for God. But in Philippians chapter four, verse six, the Bible says this. It says, don't worry about anything. Now, you may not have a problem with worrying. I do. Worrying is my spiritual gift. <laughs> not really. The Lord is up in heaven just shaking his head and saying, you never know what Mark's gonna say at New Spring. Um, I worry about everything. You give me some problem, I'll worry about it. If I don't even have any problem, I'll, I'll find something to worry about. All right? I mean, how many of you like they turn a sore throat into cancer that fast? 
Now look at what God is saying. God is saying, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Do you see the juxtaposition of those two clauses? Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Now, you know what? I'm, I'm working on an experiment in my life as I work for this message. I thought, okay, every time I get worried, I want to just do a firewall, and I want to write down whatever it is I'm worried about and turn it into a prayer because that is exactly what God is encouraging you to do. The Bible says, tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Well, again, somebody could say, well, I just don't know when I should pray. Is Does this rise to the level of prayer? I mean, you know, I've got a hangnail. Is that something to pray about? Does this rise to the level of prayer? And I don't know. I mean, I, right now I'm sort of upset with God. And, and how would he feel if I told him I was upset with him? Look at this next verse. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. So if you're happy, if you're sad, if you're worried, if you're, if you're troubled, if you're frustrated, whatever's going on in your life, the Bible says pray all kinds of prayers all the time. God is cool with that. Number nine, we're invited to pray about anything and everything. Number eight, sometimes this is my favorite. God helps us pray. I don't know about you, but there are often times when I pray and I'm like, I'm not really sure I know what to ask for, right? In fact, the older and mature, more mature that you get, the more you see of life, the more inclined you are to say, God, I'm not really sure to know what to pray for or how to pray. Well, look at this verse. The Bible says we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself speaks to God for us. He begs God for us, speaking to God with feelings too deep for words. God already knows our deepest thoughts, and he understands what the Spirit is saying. That's really cool. You know what I find interesting about this? In our world today, if you don't know how to do something, you shouldn't do it. You know how to drive a car? You shouldn't get behind the wheel. You don't, you don't know how to run a bandsaw? You shouldn't try. You shouldn't turn it on. You know what? If you don't know how to, how to, how to run heavy equipment, you should just stay out of it. I mean, that's, that's one of the lessons of life. You don't know what you're doing? You can't. That's why you have to have a license to do anything dangerous, like get married. So, uh, <laughs> just joking. And yet, here's the interesting thing. God is telling us all the time to pray, and yet he also tells us we don't know how to. But it's cool. Because the Holy Spirit, who's with us, he knows what our deepest thoughts are. I will tell you this, and I don't want to make this too long, but in the toughest times of my life, when the prayers have been the most emotional, it's been too painful to put into words. And I have learned that the most intimate prayer is to look toward God and say, God, you know. You know. You see. I mean, how many times have I prayed that prayer to God? God, you see it. You see what I see. It's okay, because the Holy Spirit knows what to say to God. He knows my feelings, and God knows what's in my deepest heart, and at the same time, God hears in what the Holy Spirit is saying. Number seven, whoa, this is a big one today. I don't know if you've seen the news lately or not, but we don't have to go crazy in a crazy world. If you've studied the Bible, you know we're in the last days before Jesus returns and the tribulation period and the Antichrist and all that stuff happens. We've been in the last days since June of 1967. We know that. I mean, Scriptures 2,500 years ago told us that when Jerusalem is back in the hands of the Jewish people, we're in the last days. It's been kicked off. It's the 50th anniversary of the last days beginning. <laughs> we're getting close. I mean, how many of you, knowing what the Bible has to say about the future and the signs of the times, you can feel the chill winds blowing off the tribulation period? We see the, the technology that's bringing about what the Bible wrote about 2,000 years ago. And Lord knows we see a leadership vacuum that would give rise to a one character, 
being an influential leader for the whole world. So what are we going to do? I mean, sometimes when I watch the news, I, I'm, are, are you, am I the only one? Do you ever feel helpless? It's like, God, it's a mess in Washington. I don't even want to hear it anymore. I don't even, I, I'm not on anybody's side up there right now. It's a mess. I, I hear what's going on in Topeka. I mean, I'm, I'm respectful of people that take these positions, but there's a leadership vacuum going on all over the world. And I, and I, I ask myself, God, what can I do? Well, listen to what the Bible says. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, Peter writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore, okay, what am I supposed to do? Be clear-minded, the Bible says, and self-controlled purpose clause, so that you can pray. God is telling me that everything in my life needs to be managed in these last days so that I can pray. There's a great, there's a great documentary on PBS on Vietnam. And I've watched all the episodes. Pretty well done, very balanced. And I was watching the last episode with the fall of Saigon, and our last Marines were on the rooftop waiting for the helicopter to come. And what kept them going was, even though the world was falling apart in Saigon, was being in radio contact with the helicopter who was coming to get them. And I thought, what a great image of us in the last days. World's falling apart around us, but with prayer, we're in contact with the one who is coming to get us. We don't have to go crazy in a crazy world. Number six, prayer means I'm never boxed in. I love this because one of the hardest times in my life is when I feel like I don't have a move, I don't have an option. Listen to this. One day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. Okay, look at that word end. And, I mean, and there is what separates polar extremes of what you and I do in a crisis. The Bible tells us, Jesus said, you should always pray and never give up. So if you're in the process of giving up, you're on the wrong end of that spectrum. Prayer always means you have a move. God does extraordinary things. Number five, prayer is always my safe place. I was talking to someone after the services last night, and I was saying, you know, it does seem that in our world today, there are fewer and fewer safe places for our emotions. With social media, we've never had more communication and less less community than we have today. And you know the worst part about today, <clears throat> you, tell, <clears throat> you tell a friend your, your open, honest emotions about what you're going through, the next thing you know, you can find it on Facebook. Somebody, somebody shared your intimate secrets. And the thing about it with God when you pray <clears throat> is God is always your safe place. Psalm 62, eight says, pour out your heart to him for God is our refuge. It's okay to pour out your heart to God. I mean, even if you're angry, Oftentimes we feel like we're angry at God, but God is still saying, hey, tell me, give me your honest <clears throat> emotions. This next verse is very, very personal to me. In Psalm 31, verse 22, David writes, in panic. And I don't know if any of the rest of you have panic attacks, but I've had them since childhood. And you know, you're supposed to outgrow them, but I don't I've never outgrown panic attacks. So I not only have what would be clinically diagnosed as panic attacks, but also have panic. And I know what the feeling of panic is. My body's fired a whole lot of adrenaline through the years. So when this verse is here, I look at it and I say, yeah, I understand what this means. David says, in panic, I cried out, I am cut off from the Lord. In other words, his panic made him feel like that God wasn't there. But he said, you heard my cry for mercy 
and you answered my call. If I'm talking to anybody else who deals with panic like I do, I just want to let you know that even when you panic and you freak out and you just feel like the world's coming apart, God is still listening to your prayer. He's listening. Man, isn't that great to know that when you're panicking, he's not? Great. Okay, number four. Jesus gives us a template. In, In the book of Matthew chapter six, it's also in the gospel of Luke. The disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus gave them what we know as the Lord's prayer. Now, one of the things I've discussed and discovered through the years is that Christians oftentimes misunderstand the Lord's Prayer. They think it's something to be recited. And, and there's nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer. It's just not what was intended. Let me give you a, an illustration that would help you understand. Suppose I went to Dylan's and I went into the drink aisle and I found a small bottle of concentrate. You know, you're supposed to add like gallons of water to it, but I got a bottle of concentrate. Now, let's just say I brought this concentrate up on stage and said, I'm thirsty, I'm going to take a drink. Everybody freak out and say, Mark, you can't drink concentrate. It's meant to be added to. It's meant, you're meant to add water to that. Well, that's the Lord's prayer. It's concentrate. Or to put it maybe in terms that you and I would understand better, it's bullet points. The Lord's prayer is a collection of topics that Jesus gave us to talk about. So it's not meant to be a humada, 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 humada kind of thing that you like recite in church, you know, give so many our, our fathers, and if you grew up like me in religion, that's, that's kind of how we were taught. <laughs> so far off. It's a collection of topics. Let me show you some of the topics in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God is saying one of the great topics to pray about is how awesome God is. When is the last time you told God how awesome he is? You know, there are times when I just see Mary Alice in the house, <clears throat> I, don't have any dis- I don't have any topic to talk about necessarily. It's nothing that I want to ask her for. It's just I'll look at her and I'll think, you know, she is so awesome. I mean, first of all, somebody put up with me for 40 years in marriage, and we've known each other since high school. I mean, there are times I just want to tell her, you are so awesome. I, I told her the other day, I said, I don't know how I found you. I, I don't know how in the world did, did, did I find you. And so there are times I just want to tell her how awesome she is. When's the last time you told God how awesome he is? The one who gives you your last breath and next breath. The one who conducts the sunset. The one who knows the stars by name. The one who knows every feeling in your life. When's the last time you just said to him, hey God, you are awesome. You're awesome. So Jesus said, talk about that. Hallowed be your name. Okay, let's move on. Your kingdom come. We just got through talking about that. That basically means I'm not I'm not in love with this world. It's crazy. I'm looking forward to when Jesus is king and everything is right. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff. I want to talk to the Lord about that in that realm. Okay, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I was talking to a good friend. I hear this from so many Christian people. They'll go through a crisis, they'll struggle, and they'll say, well, I know God has a reason for everything. Hello? God doesn't have a reason for everything. I don't, how does this garbage get taught in church? God always has a reason for everything. No. Most of the stuff that happens in our world, God doesn't have a reason for. We just covered that in reasons versus purpose. God has no reason for sin. God has no reason involved with abuse. God has no reason involved with racism. This is all sin. This is all Satan's idea. So we're told to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, this is a messed up world, and my marriage has to function and exist in a messed up world. Could we just have a little heaven zone here where your will is done on earth with my marriage the way it is in heaven? My kids, Lord, they're going to go out and face a really toxic world. Would you just like put your, put your perimeter around them, your fence around them? May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Oh, that'll give you something to talk to God about. All right, here we go. Give us today our daily bread. We don't know what we need today. We don't know what we need physically. We don't know what we need psychologically, emotionally, relationally. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us. We screw up. It's really interesting how Jesus said this. It's not translated into English well. But he said, forgive us. We are to pray, forgive us our sins as we have already forgiven those who sinned against us. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, if you're going to come to ask for forgiveness, make sure you've forgiven the people who have sinned against you. Okay, here we go. Lead us not into temptation. Lord, please don't let me step in the same hole again today. Lord, just please help me not to say something stupid today. You know, Satan has laid traps for me and my family. God, please don't help us. Let us don't, don't let us fall into it, okay? And then deliver us from the evil one. You're going to have trouble in your life. The people you love are going to have trouble in your life. Talk to God about the trouble that the people in your life and yourself are in. Okay, there you go. Number four, God gives us, Jesus gives us a template for how to pray. Number three, prayer invites God's amazingly creative solutions. You know, with the hurricanes, there's been a lot of stuff on social media about prayer. And it's been interesting to me to hear what hostility has been unleashed on people who say they are praying. That hostility is, it's in that realm of prayer doesn't do anything. You need to do something. Now, I've noticed something about that. I've been in contact with a lot of people in Houston and Florida in the last few weeks. You know what I've discovered? Most of the people really doing something are the people who pray. Not some clown in his mother's basement who thinks he's doing something by writing a post on social media. But here's what I do know. For anybody who thinks that prayer isn't really doing something, wake up. Because I don't know about what you're dealing with, but I know one thing about you. You're running into walls for which your creative mind doesn't have a solution. I'm going to tell you, no matter how smart you are, no matter how creative you are, if you're in a relationship, that relationship is going to present scenarios that don't have any option. If you're raising kids, Lord knows that. I've always said if you have more than one kid, you're going to have one kid teach you to pray. <laughs> Can I get a witness on that? <laughs> See, that's the thing. I mean, we're so accustomed in our country to the wonders of technology, and yet we're the most confused, obscure, can't figure it out people in the history of the world. Somebody says God, God's telephone number is Jeremiah 33.3. Look at it for a moment, if you will, please, with me. Jesus, or God says, call to me and I will answer you. I will tell you marvelous and wondrous things you could never figure out on your own. Well, that's attractive to me. I mean, honestly, I'm a solve it kind of guy. I mean, that is what people, you know, if you could, people sometimes wonder, think my job is preaching. Hey, preaching's what I get today. So it's almost like a hobby. I mean, it's like, it's what I get to do for fun. Six days a week, I'm, I'm a CEO. And the problems don't get to my office unless they can't be solved at a lower level. So daily, I spend my life saying yes and no to all kinds of issues and problems and situations. And God has given me a gift for strategic thinking, but oftentimes... I'll get to the edge and I realize I don't have a solution for that. And God is saying, call me, call me up, call me. I'll show you stuff you could never figure out on your own. Yeah, maybe you have a PhD, maybe you have an MBA, you know, maybe, maybe you're a CEO, maybe you're CFO, maybe you're COO. 
But God is saying, call me up because a lot of stuff I can show you you can never figure out on your own, okay? Number two, Jesus invites us to use his account. My dad taught me many things. He was a great man of God. But the verse that my dad loved most about prayer was John 14, 13. And I have a newer and better translation, but I still remember the verse and the translation that my dad taught me when I was probably 10 years old. And whatsoever you will ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Dad would just coach me up all the time on that. Son, remember this. Whatever you ask in Jesus' name, that's what the Father will do in order that Jesus is glorified. Basically what Jesus is saying, and I've said this to my, my teenage sons, you know, sometimes they'd be going out and I'd worry that they didn't have enough money and to get gasoline, and so I'd just say, well, hey, son, just take my card with you. Use my card. Now, there, there are a couple of considerations about that that we ought to stop and explore for a moment. One of those things is my sons understood that when I said take my card, that that didn't mean they could get anything. I mean, they needed to get something I was in sync with, something I, was, I would want. They would know not to do anything like this, but they would know not to take it to a casino. I mean, they would know not to, not to take it out and buy you know, Jack Daniels with it. Because that wouldn't be in, in consistency with, with what I would want them to use it for. See, sometimes when we read that, Jesus saying, ask anything in my name, it's like, oh, okay, well, I mean, I want this, I want that, and it doesn't work. And we back away from that, and we say, well, you know, that must be another one of those verses in the Bible that you kind of got to look through rosy glasses. You know, Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to give you a catalog of my will. You can have anything you want in that catalog. But here's the thing that I love about this. You have the authority of Jesus. I don't know what this is, means to you, but I, I look at this and I sometimes wonder, you know, when I go to pray and I'm like, God, I'm such a screw up. I mean, I, I know you told me to pray, but man, I just can't stop doing this and can't do this right. Jesus says pray in his name. Well, one of my favorite stories to tell is years ago, I used to speak at a church in the Washington, D.C. area in the shadow of the Pentagon. And the church was filled with Pentagon brass and military types, all ranks. There were several generals in the church. So I opened the conference on a Wednesday night, and the pastor to me, said to me after the conference, he said, uh, there's a young general here in our church that wants to take you to play golf at Andrews Air Force Base Golf Course. Hey, I don't play golf very well, but I'm not going to turn that down. So I still remember very much. The next day, this general came by my hotel and picked me up. We chatted for a little while, and then we got into the Andrews complex. This is a long time ago, so I don't remember if they had three courses like they do now or just one, but anyway, we went into Andrews Air Force Base. One of the things I remember most was parking at Andrews Golf Course. It was by rank, and the rank was determined, or the rank was communicated by those yellow parking, concrete parking stops, and there were signs on the parking stops. I think there was one for chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and then, you know, there were secretaries, and then there were stars, and then after that, there was other insignia on that. So where the, you know, the generals parked and then where the colonels parked and so on and so forth. Well, we parked up front because I was with the general. But the thing that really got to me and made me upset, being ADD like I am, is I looked at the first tee box and there was a long line of people waiting to tee off. And I thought, I think our round was at 10 o'clock, and I thought, we're not going to get on the course till 1. My gosh, there's a long line of people. But you know what? The marshals came up, put our carts on the bags, and the marshals said, hey, we're going up. And I noticed he just took us right past all those lieutenants, 
All those captains, all those majors took us past all the colonels, full bird colonels, just took us right up to the front of the line. And I looked back behind me and all those people waiting and we were teeing off. It wasn't long before somebody came to me and said, sir, may I clean your clubs? Well, they didn't do that at the public courses in Wichita. I knew that. <laughs> Never had that happen at Braeburn. Sir, may I clean your clubs? I mean, it seemed like every other hole. Sir, may I clean your clubs? Somebody would come out with a, 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 a washcloth that was, that was wet and say, sir, can I get you a washcloth? Sir, somebody else would come up to me, sir, can I get you a snack? Now, here's the thing you should understand. I graduated from high school at the end of Vietnam. So consequently, I was never in the military. I wasn't even a buck private. But as I, as I went through that course, I was being treated like a general because I was with the general on his account. I was playing the course in his account, and everything that was afforded to him was afforded to me. Do you realize that's what Jesus is saying? Hey, man, this is your course. You're playing the course. Your course is your life. Jesus has said, hey, you're playing it with me. When you want to talk to the Father, use my name. The reason I want to tell you this is a lot of you grew up in church like I did, and you were taught, hey, you got to add in Jesus' name to the end of your prayer like a formula, you know, like Mother May I or Open Sesame. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, this is an account that you're operating on. Number one, the most important prayer of all, how do you get out of this life and get into heaven? How do you get forgiven of all the sins you've ever committed? How do you get adopted into God's family? How can you go from being an outcast to being part of the inner circle? You don't get it by becoming religious. You don't get it by joining a church. We, watermark, baptism is a great thing, but Wichita water can't wash away anybody's sins. You don't get it by trying to be a better person because you can't be perfect. It is so interesting to me that the way we connect with God to receive the greatest gift of all time is to ask for it. That is the greatest prayer of all. The greatest prayer of all is when you come to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. Would you forgive me? Would you adopt me into your family? Would you give me everlasting life? You know what's interesting in the Bible? We have a lot of those prayers recorded for us, and none of them are the same. I think the Lord shows us that because it's not, again, it's not a hum to hum to hum to say the magic words. No, no, no. It's what's in your heart, and it's you reaching out to God. I think about the tax collector that Luke talks about. All he did was beat his chest and look down and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I think about the thief on the cross who was dying, who had just a little bit of time left, who craned his neck over toward Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And I think about the Philippian jailer who said, what must I do to be saved? I think about all the things in the Bible that people prayed to open a relationship, an eternal relationship with God. Week after week, I stand right here, at least four times a week, and I quote one verse over and over. For to me, it is the simplest verse in the Bible. It's just breaking this apart. It's like breaking a BB. It's Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 that says, for whosoever will call on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Let me tell you, there's a whole list of stuff I can't do. I can't be perfect. I can't fix all my craziness. You know, someone said, when God saves you, he doesn't necessarily do anything for your brain. No, that's not really true. But there's, there's, there's part of me that's just never gonna be right. 
I talked about the anxieties and all that stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have them even as a believer. I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. I mean, I could just go through all kinds of lists of stuff I'll never be able to do. And here's a big one. I can't go back 61 years and start over again and undo all the stuff I've done wrong and do right all the stuff I didn't do right. I can't do those things. But I can call. I can do that. I can ask God to forgive me. I can ask Jesus to save me. That I can do. I cannot stop being a screw-up, but he's not a screw-up. And I can connect with him on his account. Here's the thing. Jesus has said that if anyone would believe he could have everlasting life. I believe. I've called. I was eight years old in the playground of my school in Fort Worth, Texas, when I remembered a line from the sermon the day before where the pastor said, my dad, he said, if you would ask God to forgive you, forgive you all your sins. Been over to get a drink of Fort Worth water, got a drink of living water. Not from that fountain, but from Christ. Number one, the biggest prayer of all is when you invite Jesus Christ to forgive you and to be your Savior. Hey, you want to do that now? I mean, if you're here in North Auditorium, watching online, watching, on, watching around the world on television, I mean, you want to do that right now, wherever you are? I mean, it's really cool. We get messages, well, I've prayed in South Africa to receive Christ. I prayed in England to receive Christ. Love that. But whether you're here or there, you can do, I mean, God is all, he's all, he's all in all places, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. These aren't magic words, but I'm going to pray them slowly. All right? And so that if you want to own these words and say them to God, you can pray right now. You ready? Let's pray. Bow your heads with me, please, everyone. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I can't fix myself. But I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. You have offered me a gift of everlasting life if I would believe. I do believe. So Jesus, would you be my savior and my king? I give my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, please don't leave the campus without receiving a gift. All you got to do is take a talk to us card from either what you were handed when you came in or on the seat back. Just whatever information you're comfortable with, go to any info center and say, I pray with Mark. They'll give you a new Bible just like I preach from, a DVD, a book I wrote to help you get started. Thanks for being here. We'll see you this next weekend.